Hi, Cliff Goldstein here. You know, for a long time, I have argued you can't understand the meaning of life or you can't get an answer to the meaning of life until you get an answer to the meaning and question of death. That no matter what you believe about life, if you don't solve the problem of death, you don't have any answers to the meaning of life. And I was kind of excited because I recently picked up a book. It's called Confessions of a Philosopher by a fellow named Brian McGee. Brian McGee's a Brit, born in 1930, and from the biography here, quite a successful fellow. He studied philosophy and taught philosophy at Oxford, had been a member of the British Parliament, had been a music critic, a theater critic, a professional broadcaster, did a number of TV shows in England, and was, from all purposes, I could tell quite and is quite a successful person. And this book, Confessions of a Philosopher, it's sort of his own little spiritual biography or his own philosophical biography telling about the stuff he studied in philosophy and so on. And... Brian McGee is pretty much a hardcore atheist. He starts right out in the book talking about his atheism and the fact that, you know, he just didn't think that the idea of God is really a serious answer to any of life's problems. And at one point he said, by sheer chance I had the good fortune to grow up in a family in which religion was never mentioned, never even talked about religion. And he's pretty adamant that, he never believed in God. His whole life, he never believed in God. And at the same time, too, I noticed in the book, he was very respectful of people who did believe. He wasn't mocking them. And so he, you know, was clear-cut, hardcore atheist. And as I said, the book goes on and just talks about his own philosophical journey. Well, Brian McGee reached his 30s. And then a funny thing happened to Brian McGee. And let me read you a little bit of what he said. Because on the surface, I said, this man's got a great life, everything you could tell. He's in his 30s, and he said, I had everything I could possibly want, good health, energy, an adventurous life, rewarding friendship, exhilarating love affairs, success in my work, exciting travel, on and on and on. But in the middle of it all, I was overwhelmed, almost literally so, by a sense of mortality. It suddenly hit him that he was going to die. Now, again, he was obviously he wasn't a dummy. He knew all along he was going to die. But something, you reach a certain age, and suddenly the, the, the reality of him facing death, and it hit him very, very hard. He said, as in a nightmare, I felt trapped, unable to escape from something that I was unable to face. Death, my death, the literal destruction of me, was totally inevitable and had been from the very instant of my conception. So he's faced with this thing, and then he goes on. He says, nothing I could ever do now, nor at any other time, could make any difference to that, nor any, could it have ever done anything so at any moment in my life. In other words, no matter what he did, no matter what happened, he was born, and he knew he was going to die. He says he was almost born to die. And he's wrestling with this. And see, what I like about Brian McGee, you know, Brian McGee studied analytic philosophy in, in, in college, and it's logic. He was able to take his logic, his premises, and he was able to take them to his logical conclusions. And he struggled with this. In fact, it's funny, he's even got a, a line here from the poetry of Philip Larkin, where Philip Larkin goes, Being brave lets no one off the grave. Death is no different wind at than withstood. In other words, he realizes 
his mortality. He realizes that he's going to die, and he really, really wrestles with it. But what I say, what I like about it is his logic. Not so much logic, I'm going to die, but he takes the premise that he knows he's going to die to its logical conclusion. And what is that conclusion? That conclusion that is, if I'm here, if I live this life, and then I die, and I'm going to be dead for all eternity, and anything I've ever done is going to vanish, then it's all ultimately meaningless. See, this goes back to what I said in the beginning. If we don't answer the question of death, or solve the question of death, how do we get anywhere near at the question and meaning of life? Let me read you a little more from Brian McGee. He says, In the face of death, I crave for my life to have some meaning. I found the thought that it might just might mean nothing at all, might in a long perspective be nothing at all, terrifying. So he's realizing if I'm here and I'm going to die and I'm going to be dead for eternity, what can it all mean? It means nothing. And then he goes on. The meaningless of everything was a real possibility. Confronted with this fact, I felt what can be described only as existential terror, a horror of nothingness. That is a little spooky, isn't it? The thought of eternal nothingness. Here we are now, and then boom, we're gone, and everything we've done, gone forever. And again, let me read you a little more. In the eye of eternity, human lifespan is barely a flicker. Death will be upon us before we know where we are, and once we are dead, it will be forever. What can anything I do mean or matter to me when I have gone down into complete nothingness for the rest of eternity? What can it matter to anyone else either when they too are eternally nothing? If the void is the permanent destination of all of us and all value and all significance are merely pretended for the purpose of carrying on our little human game like children dressing up, it is, of course, a willing pretense. We cannot bring ourselves to face the eternal nothingness, so we busy ourselves with our little lies and all their vacuous pursuits. In other words, in the end, we know we're going to die. We don't want to face it, so we try to keep ourselves busy. Keep ourselves busy to pretend we're not going to die. made me think of an article I read a while back from some, some high school in New Jersey where they got these stellar high school students who are excelling in everything. They're doing great in everything. And someone asked these kids, why are you working so hard? What are you trying to achieve? One of the kids said something to the effect of, well, we're doing this to try to avoid death. Well, I think what he, the kid really meant was we're doing this to try to avoid the facing the reality of, of his death. You know, sure, in the end, we all die. We're, in that sense, we're no different than oysters or chickens. In the sense, we all die, but there's a fundamental difference between us and oysters and chickens. And Brian McGee is expressing it here. Oysters and chickens don't know they're going to die. We do. And so we're stuck. We're stuck with this great, great uh, dilemma that we face here because we don't have answers to this. So, you know, here's the thing. Let me read you just a little more, a little more of Brian McGee because I think his point's well taken. He says, compared with an eternity of nothingness, the length of a human lifetime was not so much as the twinkling of an eye, that I was about to be swallowed up by an everlasting void, then nothing I did was of the slightest significance. He goes, when I went, whether I wrote great books, became foreign secretary, none of this would matter to me or anyone else when they all were going to be nothing, as everyone was going to be, that it can make no difference when I died or would have made no difference if I had never been born. 
that I was ever going to be for all eternity what I had been if I had never been born, that there was no meaning in any of it, no point in any of it, and that in the end, everything was nothing. Now, you might not like the morbidity. You might not agree with only so morbid, blah, 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 get a life and on and on. Well, it's kind of ironic, get a life, that's the whole point. But in the end, I challenge you, how can you argue with his logic if it's all going to be swallowed up in the end? You know, here's the thing. You know, I don't know. I don't know any of you who are watching this. I don't know anything about you. I don't know how old you are. I don't know where you live. I don't know how healthy you are. I don't know anything about you at all. But there's one thing I know definitely about you. Is that whether it's through Osama bin Laden, whether it's too, much, too many McBur you know, hamburgers at McDonald's and french fries, whether it's from the jeans grandma left you, or whether it's just from plain old age, sooner or later, something one way or another, somebody or something is going to erase your map. And everything you've ever accomplished, anything you've ever done, is going to be gone because anything you've ever done for anybody else, those people are all going to die. And their old friends are all going to die. And on and on and on and on and on. It's all going to be gone forever, for eternity. So what could it all mean? And in the end, there's nothing you can do. What are you going to do? You know, fruit juices, your raspberry enemas, you know, jogging, all those things in the end aren't going to mean a thing. It's just going to slow it down. Until the end, boom, it's all gone forever. One way or another. See, it's funny, too. I say it's funny. But, you know, scientists come up with different ways. They believe ultimately in the end the world's going to end. One way or another. Uh, Paul Davies is an um, astrophysicist, an Australian astrophysicist. He talks about, well, let me read you. It's a book called The Last Three Minutes. And he gives a little explanation of how in the end we could all get our maps erased. The Milky Way blazes with the light of a hundred billion stars, and every one of them is doomed. In ten billion years, most of what we see now will have faded from sight, snuffed out from lack of fuel, victims of the second law of thermodynamics. And goes on. He says a similar fate awaits all other galaxies scattered across the chasms of space. The universe currently aglow with prolific energy of nuclear power will eventually, it will eventually exhaust this valuable resource. The era of light will be forever over. So if the era of light is over, no more sun, where is that going to leave us and all our plans and all our dreams? Or some don't think it's going to happen that way. Some think you know, they say the universe is expanding. And it keeps expanding and spinning, but eventually it's kind of like a rubber band. It keeps expanding, but then one day it's just going to start coming back in. It's going to come back in and get smaller and smaller and smaller. The big crunch, they call it, till the whole universe, the whole universe might be squeezed down to a size of maybe my fist. Now, where do you think that's going to leave you and all your hopes and your plans and your dreams when the whole universe is nothing but the size of a fist? And again, there's nothing we can do about it. I want to read you a poem. A poem called Mother Earth. And the author, I believe, is talking about, again, I don't know you, I don't know where you are, but the author of this poem, I believe, is talking about you. So listen carefully. Mother Earth. I'm haunted by the dead. Not because they come back, but because they can't. Mother Earth won't let them go. Einstein got it wrong. Gravity isn't matter bending space-time. 
It's Mother Earth's apron strings. Fervent as chain. She wastes nothing, this mother of ours. What she gives, she takes back. Always. All-consuming, such love forgets nothing, not even memories. Every image absorbed, her ground is wet, sticky, fertile with loss. Maybe that's why we seek a heavenly father. Mother Earth is calling. Can't you hear? The sunrise squeezes her pleas out of shadows. The moonlight bakes them and the wind breaks them into white dust that birds splatter through our hair. The old, the stale, hear. The young pretend not to, but do. But they can't fool Mother Earth. Besides, she can wait. See, in the end, Mother Earth is pulling, is calling each one of us. And as the poem says, sooner or later she takes everything back in that she gave out. And when that happens, what do we have left? What's left for us when this happens? So again, I ask the question, if everything you do, if anything you do for anybody, if everything one day is all swallowed up, is all gone, all enters a void of nothingness where it's all gone, all forgotten, nobody knows about it, nobody sees it, nobody remembers it, nobody thinks about it, it's all swept up into nothingness. What sense does anything, anything in your life make? What sense is anything you're doing? What could it all mean if it all ends in death? If the universe burns out, the lights all go out, last one out, turn out the light? Or if it's all crushed into the cosmic heat death, or the sun blows up, or we blow each other up with nuclear weapons? What does it all matter in the end when we're all gone and dead? As I said in the beginning, if we don't answer the question of death, we don't have an answer to the question of life. And this is what Brian McGee, this is what Brian McGee was struggling with. And then he said, you know, it's funny, he goes through the book and he's talking about his exploits and so on, and he's living his life and he's doing these things, and yet the whole time he's got this thing hanging over him, this, this reality of his death and the meaningless, it's not even so much his death, that I, I know that bothers him, but it's, it's what death does to his life. What happens to the life precedes it. If death makes everything that happened precedes it meaningless, then it's kind of hard to wonder, why get up in the morning? Why, you know, brush your teeth? Why get up and go to work? What does it all mean? Reminds me, I remember there was a movie, Woody Allen's Annie Hall. I don't know if any of you ever saw it, but it's so funny because they got Woody Allen when he's a kid. They have this little red-haired kid with freckles, and his mother's taken her to the doctor. You know, and Woody Allen's Jewish, and the Jews, you know, everything is the doctor, the doctor. And the doctor solves everything. So the mother takes him to the doctor, because apparently somewhere as a kid, he had read somewhere that the, the sun is going to blow up in five billion years, and everybody on earth is going to be destroyed. And so the little kid goes, I don't want to, you know, he's not going to school. He won't do anything because it's all meaningless. It's all going to be blown up. And the mother's hysterical going, it's none of your business. It's none of your business. And they take him to the doctor, and the doctor tries to explain him, well, it's going to be billions of years. We'll all be dead anyway. And yet, in a sense, that's the point. That's the point. We're all going to be dead anyway. And again, Brian McGee goes on, and then he talks about something. And I used to wonder about this, too, is that we all know this. And then yet people just go on living their lives as if it doesn't make any difference one way or the other, whether we're going to die. He talks about his frustration with this. I used to look at people going around their normal lives with everyday cheerfulness and think, how can they? And how can they suppose that any of what they're doing matters? 
Okay, then he goes on. They're like passengers on the Titanic, except these people know already that they're headed for total and immediate shipwreck. In a short time, every one of them will be dead, either a heap of gray ash in an urn or a corpse rotting underground with worms wiggling in and out of their eye sockets. Then he goes on and says he hangs out with the guys at the club, and they're laughing, and they're joking, and they're having a good time, and yet they all know they're going to die, but it doesn't seem to make any difference to them, to them at all. And he's struggling with this because it makes a difference. And because, again, he's one of these people who can take his premises to his logical conclusion. That reminds me a little, too. He's not the only one to think of that. I mean, centuries ago, Frenchman Blaise Pascal, Frenchman's Blaise Pascal in uh, his book, Pensees, oh, that's my French, Pensees. Tous mes frères de français m'ont toujours dit que je parle français comme un an, un an. When you hear my accent, you can see why. But anyway, here's France, here's Pascal, centuries ago, dealing with the same question. He says, he says here, let me get the page. For it is not to be doubted that the duration of this life is but a moment, that the state of death is eternal, whatever may be its nature. And thus all our actions and our thoughts must take such a different direction according to the state of that eternity. And he goes on and on and on. And then he says... You know, there is nothing clearer than this, and thus according to the principles of reason, principles of reason, the conduct of man is wholly unreasonable if they do not take another course. In other words, he's saying, look, we all know we're here. We all know we're going to die. We all know that eternity, however long we're going to be dead, we're going to be dead for a whole lot longer than we're alive. Reminds me of a T-shirt my son has. It says it's not that death life is so short, it's just that death is so long. And Pascal as well is expressing his frustration his frustration with people who facing this, and they don't seem to care. They know they're going to die. They know they're going to be dead for eternity. But it doesn't matter. They're too busy just getting on with their life. One more quote. He goes, We do not require great education of mind to understand that here there is no real lasting satisfaction, that our pleasures are only vanity, that our evils are infinite, and that lastly, that death, which threatens us every moment, must infallibly place us within a few years under the dreadful necessity of being forever annihilated, and on and on. And he struggles. Why don't people care? And that's what Brian McGee, that adds to his frustration. Is he the only one worrying about this? Makes me think, too, again, you're going to have to get used to me. I like poems, but I think of uh, this William, wrong poem, this guy, Henley. William Ernest Henley wrote this poem wrote this poem and he's kind of fighting against, he's going to be macho and he's going to deal with the question of death, you know, and he goes, you know, he's talking about staring death in the face and he goes, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. They are real macho, except I think the guy died when he was, you know, in his early 50s. So I don't think that was the master of his soul, the captain of his fate. I don't think he would have died in his 50s if he could have. But again, the point again is, we're all facing this. What is the meaning of life? What can life mean if it's all ultimately swept into nothing? And people have wrestled with this and struggled with this, trying to find answers. There was a Frenchman named Albert Camus. Camus. I can find it here. He wrote a famous book called The Stranger. Made a movie out of it. It's probably the book that made him famous. And it's about this guy, supposedly this Mr. Existentialism. You know, knows life is meaningless. And 
has a girlfriend. She says, you want to get married? He goes, eh, if you want to, don't matter. His boss wants to know, you want to move to another city and have another job? Eh, doesn't matter. If you want to, makes no difference, so on. Like, it's just all meaningless. And uh, eventually, in the story, he's on a beach and hot day, and he gets in an argument, and he just shoots some arrow, blows him away with a gun. And then the book tells he goes to jail, and, and then in the book... He's convicted, he's sentenced to death, and he says, he says, I didn't have time to because the presiding judge told me in a bizarre language that I was about to have my head cut off in a public square in the name of the French people. Then the judge says to him, you know, you have anything to say? And he says, no. And they took me away. About to chop his head off and he's got nothing to say. Then later on in the book he's talking and he says, well, I'm going to die. Sooner or later everybody will, obviously, but everybody knows life isn't worth living. Then another place he said, we're all, since we're all going to die, it's obvious that when and how doesn't matter. And again, I think there's a certain logic here. There's a certain logic because if we're all going to die and it's all going to be for oblivion and it's all, gonna, it's all meaningless beforehand, what difference does it ultimately make? What difference does it ultimately make if we're all going to... And that's his point. Then I think it ends here in his cell... He's waiting to die in his cell. Let me read you. Let me read you what it says. Here he's in his cell, waiting to die. The wondrous peace of that sleeping summer flowed through me like a tide. There, in the dark hour before dawn, sirens blasted. They were announcing departures for a world that now and forever meant nothing to me. But you know, I'm sorry, but I'm not convinced. I don't care how existentialist he is and how much he, the fact that he might not think life means anything. We, we care about the world. We're part of this world. We struggle with these things. Because this is not real. I think much, much more real is these lines from Dylan Thomas's poem, When His Father Was Dying. Famous poem, Do not go gentle into that good night. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. See, that's the thing. We're here. We're here. We, we're, we're in this world. We're, this is all we know, and we struggle for answers. We struggle for meaning because none of us want to die. None of us want to die, and yet we live. You know, what a dilemma. We're in this world. We have this life. We don't really know what it means, and then we face death, and we fear that with death it will all ultimately mean nothing. And again, I come back. What are our answers? What hope do we have? Science? Science? Oh, please. You know what science, you know what science will do for you with death? Well, sure, they help prolong the agony a little longer. When you're sick, they'll give you a little chemo. Help keep you miserable and alive a little longer before you're gone in the end anyway. You know, they, and, and then some sense science makes it even more scary. I mean, I mean, uh, some of these folks, Pascal, didn't have to worry about weapons of mass destruction, did he? What does science offer to do for death? Well, they'll chop your head off when you die. They'll chop your head off and put you in a vat of liquid nitrogen for $30,000 in the hopes that 1,000 years from now they can attach you to somebody and you can have immortality. Somehow I don't think science has taken us much further than what they did with the Egyptians with them bombing them and putting them in pyramids. So again, I struggle. I ask the question, death, until you answer the question of death. You have no 
answer to the meaning of life. This is what Frank Tipler himself, I mean, this is what um, Brian McGee really, really struggled with. He saw it through it logically. You know, is this all there is? Again, I asked the question. You know, you think about it, too. Your finger has a purpose. Your ear has a purpose. Your eye has a purpose. Your nose, the sun, the sky, they've all got purpose. And then in the end, in the end, they all add up to, you know, to purposelessness. It all comes to mean nothing. It's like you've got a bunch of positive integers and you add them up and they come out to zero or less than zero. It doesn't make sense. And yet, what are we left with? What other alternative is there, whether you, again, whether you agree with his morbidity or not? I challenge anybody, I challenge anybody to argue with the logic of Brian McGee here, that if he ends in death and eternal death, everything before it is ultimately meaningless, is meaningless. If, in the end, nature is all there is, it's what the ancient philosophers, the pre-Socratic, used to call it atoms in the void. Funny, these are people centuries before Christ talk about atoms in the void. If that's all there is, if scientific materialism is all that there is, and that's the truth, we're here purely by chance, that all it is is atoms in the void, then what other conclusion can you come to that it's all other than it's all meaningless? If nature is all that there is, and we're part of nature, you know, people say, oh, nature, and they write all these poems about nature, and sure, we all love nature, and we all love the birds and the trees and the flowers and being out and all that, but hey, in the end, nature, as it now stands, isn't your friend. Don't forget our poem about Mother Nature. Nature is the problem, because death is part of nature, and that same nature that gives you the flowers and the trees is going to suck you back into itself forever and ever, and you have what? We need, unless there's something beyond nature, unless there's something transcending nature, unless there's something out of nature, over nature, greater than nature, able to control nature, unless there's something beyond the natural, something, dare I say, supernatural, I don't see how we can argue with anything that Brian McGee says, that every aspect of your life, everything you're doing, in the end, it all ultimately comes down to meaningless. Yeah, Brian McGee got middle age. Something funny happened to him. He faced his mortality. Yet the only problem is, is I don't think, as I read the book, I don't see Brian McGee laughing. And quite frankly, I don't think that is something that any of us could ultimately laugh about.